Good morning, guys. My name is Josh, in case you didn't know. Uh, my wife, Lynn, and I have been coming to Catalyst for a little over four years now, and I'm just now finally getting enough courage to do this thing of speaking to all of you. Uh, so feel free to heckle and yell at me. It'll make me feel more at home. Uh, speaking of which, oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, I'm pretty sure that some of us have probably gotten into some dumb yelling matches over stupid stuff, maybe once upon a time. For my wife and I, it was a fight over dishes. I'm sure no one's ever had that fight. Uh, and in the end, it ended in me yelling at her that she didn't really love me, and that she yelled back that I was acting like her five-year-old sister. So yeah, not really a proud moment there. Um, but it, makes, it lends itself to believe that it's not that surprising that our churches are probably known for arguing and splitting over some pretty dumb things. So how ridiculous, you ask? Well, here is my top five, if that's a good thing. Number one, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Number two, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during service. Uh, <laughs> number three, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. Number four, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved to a, from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand, and in the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend, and members of that church left. And number five, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them, which resulted in a major split and fight, or fight and split. Uh, now, these are downright ridiculous, and hopefully we don't get any fights over the worship pastor's beard length, possibly. But the thing to remember is that there's always really a deeper issue. The vacuum fight wasn't really about the vacuum all along. There was an issue underneath these issues that went unaddressed for a long time. Now, our inability to identify and engage with these issues is a real problem. And it's safe to say that the church, the body of Christ, we're kind of known for our arguing and infighting. And our arguments aren't always about silly things, though. Sometimes these arguments over core issues that really mean a lot to us. I mean, I've personally seen churches split over things like alcohol and homosexuality and finances. But this morning, I'd like to propose that making conflicts about determining who is right and who is wrong, we're really missing the point. The goal of our faith has never been about being the most right. It's about connecting people to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that these issues need to be brushed under the rug and not dealt with. I'm saying, and also what I'm saying is that when I say unity, don't under, misunderstand that for uniformity. We are all individuals and we're crafted by God and we all have different life experiences. And because of this, there's always going to be some natural disagreements that we have. But the truth is that these issues don't have to simmer over until they boil into, up into fights. And when fights eventually do happen, it doesn't have to mean the end of relationships. But our deep lack of unity over both the trivial and the important has really hurt us, Christ's image, and our witness. But when we have a foundation of unity, when we're all on the same page, we can actually invite the other side into a deeper relationship with both God and us through conflict. So today is going to be about refusing to be the morality police, always looking at each other and judging or feeling like we're being judged, because really that's just exhausting. Instead, today is going to be about committing together to look to Jesus, 
He is the one at the center of our common faith. So let's sing together about and direct our love and our worship and our attention to him. All right, guys, so this is in the church calendar, <clears throat> which was new to me coming to Catalyst. This is the season of Epiphany. And as the season following Christmas, Epiphany celebrates God being revealed not just to a selection, select chosen few, but to the whole world. And this year, our Epiphany series is called Ask Better Questions. So during the series, we're going to be reading the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. This letter is responding to the questions that they raised. And their questions are going to be specifically about how to understand God working in their lives. In other words, what does it mean to say that God is for my world? And when they're asking those questions, they really want to know, what does it mean that God is for me? Or what does it mean that he says, for my world? So one of my favorite things about the Bible is it's kind of like an onion, you know, has layers. Uh, and just like an onion, farther down through the layers, the better it gets if you like onions, which I don't, but that doesn't work. So this book and chapter have several things going on, which is really interesting. The broader context is that this church of Corinth is struggling with a whole host of conflicts and issues at the exact same time. You may remember JR referenced some a couple weeks ago of people sleeping with their mothers, but we won't talk about this that this week. That is because this church is full of an incredibly diverse people, and of course, naturally, all of them are at different levels of spiritual maturity. So Corinth was the major trade city in that area of the Mediterranean. The isthmus it's located on is smack dab in between two land masses and two significant bodies of water. So naturally, thousands of people and tons of goods and dozens of different cultures are passing through this, this city on a daily basis. So it's safe to say that some conflict, conflict is expected. The Corinthian Christians were diverse. So when they couldn't resolve these conflicts, they wrote a letter to Paul and asked for some wisdom and guidance. And I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that Paul expected this, considering he planted the church. And one of these issues that they were disagreeing on was about whether it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And if you're anything like me, you probably haven't been to an animal sacrifice lately, so this might be a little kind of weird, but unless you count going to the salt lick, which is heavenly experience. But what was the big deal with the meat offered to pagan gods versus Yahweh. Well, the issue that many of these Christians had was, one, that that meat would be considered unclean, and two, that in a way you were tacitly approving of idol worship by doing that. Now, these, the more mature believers understood that those fake idols were just that. They weren't real. They were no more real than this stand right in front of me here is. So with this understanding, they were eating anything and everything whenever they wanted to. But that caused others to doubt their faith because they felt, why would any true believer want to endorse idol worship or even be associated with that? So understanding both these sides and seeing the issue, Paul was able to write an incredibly wise and unifying response that we saw in chapter 8, and it goes this, like this. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. Now, it is true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. 
We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with the weaker consciences to stumble. So what he's saying is that even though all this meat is offered to idols, it doesn't really matter. Well, why? Well, because there's only one true God. So Paul is clearly coming out on the side of the more mature believers here. So, but let's just pause for a second and think of the context here. When Paul wrote a letter to a church that he had planted, how they all got to hear it is they all sat down together and someone read it out loud in front of everybody. So that means that the ones that he called weak were sitting right next to the ones that he called strong. Awkward. I can't imagine being that. Because imagine if you are the weak one or if, imagine if you're the strong one. You know, that can create some even more conflict sometimes. But the thing is, Paul didn't just let the stronger believers off the hook. We need to take into account whether or not the exercising of that freedom would cause the weaker to stumble. So, straightforward, right? He answered the question, we can move on, go on with life. Well, he did, but being Paul, he always likes to push the issue a little further. So in chapter 9, the Corinthians had been asking, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Or for us, to put it in modern day terms, it may sound like is it okay to drink alcohol? So when we compare idol meat to our issue of alcohol nowadays, you can kind of get a sense of the gravity of the issue they were facing. For some of us, alcohol is not a big deal. We haven't had issues with it. We can drink a little, not get drunk, don't indulge in it too much. Whereas for others of us, alcohol is a serious issue. It's created a lot of heartache in our lives or the ones that we know. So the ones who drink aren't a bunch of drunkards who are looking to party all the time. But the ones who don't drink or don't want people to drink aren't a bunch of prudes or killjoys. Each side really has a reason that they hold to their beliefs. But really underneath these questions lies this base one of, of am I right? Is my way the right way? Because I really feel like it is. And for the Corinthians, being right meant they could do what they wanted. Being right about that issue gave them the right to eat meat or not eat it as they saw. And we're the same way sometimes. We want faith to be about who is right and who is wrong. We, but Paul wants more from us. He wants to peel back another layer. He wants us to ask that deeper question. So we're going to read now in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You take a second to turn there. We're going to start in verse 19 this morning. It goes like this. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. No, there's a lot there. So, but Paul is really saying, hey guys, you're really missing the whole point. He would do just about anything to bring someone to Christ. So asking, am I right, is the wrong question. The question needs to be, am I loving the person on the other side? Jesus didn't say, go and tell everyone what they're doing wrong and how they can be more like you. He said, go and spread the good news. 
And the news is that the God of the universe wants a relationship with everyone. So Paul explains that his freedom allows him to become all things to all people, that he's not really bound by the social rules or people's expectations. He can go out to the bar on Saturday night and then go to church the next morning. So that means we as Christians are free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, which is awesome because I'm having a kegger tonight and everybody's invited. <laughs> Kidding, not tonight. It's next week. No, um, if that, <laughs> but if that was our first reaction to what Paul said, then it reveals a spiritual immaturity in us. It shows that our first instinct is that of a teenager whose parents went away for the weekend that we are seeking to fulfill our selfish desires and often sinful desires rather than the purpose that God is calling us to. Yeah, I, I had to admit that to myself too. <laughs> because more often than I'd like to admit, I am the teenager. But I know that it can feel like a slippery slope to say that we have the freedom to become all things, yet Paul was not looking for an excuse to go out and drink a party. He was saying that we're missing the point, asking the wrong question, we need to ask, am I loving the person on the other side? Am I using my freedom to help others rather than myself? Paul seemed to anticipate this teenage-like response, though. He even addressed it earlier in chapters by referencing a common saying that they had all heard before. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Paul said that he used his freedom to become a slave to all. Yet becoming a slave doesn't also mean we become a slave to their sins as well. So yeah, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it. So someone who is strong, maybe not likely to get drunk, could say, I'm free to drink whenever I want, wherever I choose, because I can handle it. I won't get drunk, I won't lose this control. And while that might be true, in the presence of someone who is weak, or maybe someone who struggles with alcoholism, the stronger person needs to consider the potential consequences of their behavior on the weaker. So if I insist on drinking alcohol in the presence of an alcoholic, my behavior might tempt the alcoholic to fall off the wagon. But so if we're supposed to really avoid causing to stumble while meeting them where they're at, how do we do that? What does that really look like for us? Well, it means stepping into their world and what they're accustomed to. But like in verse 21, he says this, When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But... I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So for Paul, I kind of imagine a scenario like this. This is my own made-up. This isn't biblical. Uh, Paul is meeting with some fellow Gentile Christians, and like any good Nazarene, I kind of imagine that they're all eating together. Uh, so the host is bringing out all these delicious sides one by one, filling up this large table, and then they bring out the main dish. The best part, it is bacon-wrapped quail. So now, Paul, who was a Jewish scholar, he was a Pharisee before he converted to Christianity. And so that meant that he's got years and years of Jewish customs and beliefs ingrained to his head. I'm sure none of us can identify with that. Uh, I'm sure, but, and I'm sure that every bone in Paul's body would be screaming that he can't, as a good Jew, eat bacon. That's not allowed. But then he's the guest of honor with these Gentile Christians. So everyone's looking at him, waiting to see what he'll do. And he slowly reaches out, grabs that first piece of quail, and takes a bite. And I kind of imagine everyone in the room just kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Well, why? Well, probably because they felt, hey, he's like us. Like, he's not up here, and we're down here, and he's this Jewish guy, and we're just basic Gentiles. 
And Paul knows that eating the bacon doesn't make him any less a Christian than not eating it does. But he went out of his comfort zone so that he could break down a well-known barrier between Jews and Gentiles. It was about doing all that he could to reach the most people. Plus, he got to eat bacon. I mean, that's kind of an obvious one there. <laughs> and so it also meant that the next time that Paul went and hung out with the Jewish Christians, he didn't bring a plate of bacon with him to that meal. So being free in Christ means that we don't see ourselves as better than someone else because maybe we don't struggle with the same things that they do. Being free in Christ might mean driving a friend to an AA meeting, not because they can't drive themselves, but because they need support. Being free in Christ might mean going to an abortion clinic, not to protest, but to sit and listen to the stories and the struggles of the women there. What God wants from us is a relationship. So isn't that what we should want to build with those around us? We are not called to tell people what they did wrong or fight about whose interpretation of the Bible is right. The Holy Spirit handles all of it. Christ's commandment to us was to go, not to sit around and hope that those of us who need Christ the most will just wander into a church somewhere, because that's not happening. See, Christ went out and he touched the leper. He sat and talked with the adulteress, and he ate with the thieves. Most of the people that he encountered already knew their sins and shortcomings, and they weren't looking for someone to debate what was right and what was wrong with. They wanted someone that would listen, someone to understand them, someone that would love them and be God to them. So what does that look like for you to humble yourself? What does it mean for you to step into an uncomfortable place, but it's going to be a place where you can reach those who need it? What does it mean for you to become the weak to the weak? For me, it was taking a road trip to Austin, Texas. I know that wasn't expected, but talk about getting out of comfort zone. Austin's, you know, super liberal, so it's hard to go there sometimes. But this time... It wasn't the destination that had me feeling out of sorts or anything, but more so the company I was with. I was heading out on a last-minute, day-long road trip with two guys that I barely knew anything about, but they invited me, so I figured, sure, why not? And then we had to make conversation for like six hours round trip with these two people I barely know, so there's plenty of those, you know, car, pregnant, silence things where you're just staring out the windows. You know, an extrovert's worst nightmare. Uh, but after winding our way through all those surface-level topics, we wound up on the, you know, really interesting, greatly unifying subject of religion and beliefs. Yay! So, a little bit of background on me. I was raised by parents who are North American Mission Board missionaries, and my dad was a Southern Baptist preacher. So, I was at church two to three times a week from birth until, I think, about 16 when I had a choice. So to say that I had some deeply ingrained beliefs would be a little bit of an understatement. And I'm sure you can imagine I have the scriptures locked away, the specific ones that back up my points. So anyway, we start discussing the background of our beliefs growing up and everything like that. But then we got into like the good stuff. You know, we start talking about abortion and homosexuality and gay marriage and women's roles in church. Yeah, I got deep real fast. So and it quickly became clear that one of these guys had spent a lot of time reading the Bible and probably a lot of other religious texts and maybe went to school for it. And yet, to my surprise, he didn't try to argue with me. He wasn't there to try and tell me how wrong I was about different things. Instead, he just asked me questions. 
He probed about my beliefs, seeking to understand why I believed the way I did. He asked me to point out in the Bible where it referred to those beliefs I had. And you know what? I didn't realize how little I knew until someone asked me. Because I knew the verse, but maybe I didn't understand everything going on. You know, we can make things into what we want them to be so that they support our beliefs sometimes. And I'm, I can imagine that some of you probably have strong, some strong beliefs as well. And the thing about this situation is, as much as I thought I was the strong one, I was the weak one. I thought I had it all figured out. But the more that he asked and the more that he sought to know me, the more I realized maybe I didn't have it all figured out. And he was the more mature one, the stronger one. And he stepped into my weakness, becoming weak to help me become stronger. Now, this didn't mean that I changed everything I believed right then to be what he believed, but it caused me to step back and reevaluate myself. I had to search my heart and my God and ask him to grow me and reveal the things that I was missing. And so I've become well acquainted with the verse that goes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So it wasn't really some dramatic thing that happened. It was really as simple as just a conversation. But it could have gone a totally completely different way. It could have gone how many of our social media conversations go. He could have used this greater depth of knowledge to make me feel small in my ignorance. Or he could have dismissed me as some dummy who will never learn. And in turn, I'm sure I would have written him off as some high and mighty know-it-all who probably has the head knowledge but no heart knowledge. But thankfully, it didn't go that way. Instead, I saw an example of how best to meet everyone around me where they're at and then join them in their journey. See, it doesn't matter who they are or if I've experienced exactly what they're going through. I can be Jesus to somebody simply by being more interested in who they are rather than what they've done. See, we as a church body are struggling with how to handle these issues like sexuality and alcohol and political division. And these are important issues that we must work through together, but they cannot divide us. These cannot overtake and overshadow our first calling, which is to spread the good news. Instead of asking, can I use my freedom to do whatever I want? Or maybe about who is right in this situation? We need to ask, how can I use my freedom to show love to others on the other side. We were called into a relationship, not a set of rules and regulations. And this is a relationship that brings life, and this is everlasting life. So today, we're going to come together at the communion table, and we're going to celebrate the unity that we have with God and with each other through Jesus. This meal is going to invite us to share the table with Jesus and his disciples the night that he was killed. At that meal, he broke bread and gave it to us, and he said, This bread is my body, broken for you. Eat it all. Later in the meal, he passed the cup of wine to us, and he said, This wine is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it all. We come to the table today as a people who are loved and forgiven by God, called to serve each other as Jesus has served us. He held back nothing from us, not even his own life, and that we might be saved. So too, he invites us to use the freedom that he has given us to serve each other 
and the world around us. So you don't have to be a member of Catalyst today to receive communion with us. If you are willing to receive God's sacrifice for you and to imitate God in serving the world around you, you're welcome to participate. So before we approach the table, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of exam this morning. I'll ask you four questions to give you some space to reflect on what God is calling you to today. After we've worked through these questions, I'll pray for us, and then you're welcome to come forward as you're ready. Here's the first question. When in the last week did I use my freedom to serve others? When in the last week did I insist on my rights above everyone else's? When in the next week will I be tempted to insist on my way above all? And lastly, how can I use my God-given freedom to serve others this week? Let's pray. God of Epiphany, you have gathered together today a people who is used to insisting on our own ways. And we confess that too often we make an idol out of our own freedom, insisting on the rights of our own causes at the expense of our relationships. We have heard the words of your servant Paul, who used the freedom you gave him to become a slave to everyone that he met. 
We have been challenged again by his example to pursue loving unity with each other rather than the rightness of our causes. And now, God, you invite us into your communion table, this place where we remember that you did not stand aloof in heaven and declare your righteousness to us, sinners down here on earth. Rather, you humbled yourself, Lord. You, and rather than use your freedom to rule over us, you came down. It is this loving sacrifice that you call us to imitate now. So we approach your table to receive these wafers and juice, and we pray that they become a spiritual food to us. Give us the grace that we need to imitate you. Give us the grace we need to be your people. Bind us together as one body in your love. Make us one with you and with each other. That way we might offer your love and grace to the world around us. We offer these prayers and approach the, your table in the name of your son, Jesus. So now, catalysts, since epiphany is when we are asking about God's calling, we're going to give you a question each week to spend thinking on, praying on, meditating on, and talking about in your C groups. This question is for this week, where do I need to pursue unity before I disagree? Where do I need to pursue unity before I disagree? As you go this week, may you find God is making you one with him and with all of us here. May you find that unity is not the same as uniformity, but rather it's a beautiful mess. We're all drawn together in the grace we receive through Christ. May this grace overflow from here into the world around us, and that they may know that they too are invited. So go in the grace and the peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>